You're listening to the Capay Friends Community Church Podcast, recorded March 29th, 2015. Palm Sunday. Who is he? This is one of those Sundays where you might leave here not with the warm fuzzies. And that's, I want to let you know that that is okay. Sometimes we come to church and we have those experiences where we feel warm and fuzzy and we know that there is a God who loves us and he does. But this is one of those Sundays where we are faced to confront our broken and fallen condition, our humanity, and look at the suffering of Christ. So if you leave here a little depressed, I want to let you know that that is okay. As we enter into Easter and Holy Week, uh, you can't help but turn on the TV and notice that there is a lot of programming uh, on that has to do um, with the Bible. Uh, Every year, ABC uh, plays the Ten Commandments, right? The Charlton Heston, NRA, Charlton Heston, uh, Ten Commandments, right? And and I think it starts about like 8 a.m. and ends about 5 p.m. with commercials and everything. It's like a whole marathon. You have to watch the whole thing. I was noticing, uh, I read an article in National Geographic the other day, and it talked, and there was a whole article about who is Jesus. The Discovery Channel has a program on, did Jesus actually exist? Who is Jesus? And what I found that these articles and these shows, they all say a lot without laying claim to anything. And that's where we are today. Who is Jesus? Who is the Christ. And Jesus actually asked his disciples this question. Today we're going to be look starting Matthew chapter 16 starting in verse 13. Then we're going to move to Matthew 21 and then we'll end in Matthew 27. So if you want to mark those places in your Bible, that's kind of our direction, our trajectory this morning. But we're going to start in Matthew 16 starting in verse 13. Says this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? First, I want us to get a picture of the landscape where Jesus and his disciples are. They're at Caesarea of Philippi. It's an area littered with temples of Syrian gods. It's like this mountain community, and there are also these carvings of Greek gods. Um, There's this famous Greek god named Pan, and he takes on the form of half man, half goat, and there'd be these large carvings into mountainsides of the Greek god Pan. Now, people would sacrifice to the Greek god Pan and also do unspeakable things with goats because it was believed that this god brought fertility, brought wealth, and brought um, blessings. There was also... um, coming out of this mountain was was this river and it's the most important river in Judaism it's the river Jordan this is the source of where it sprang to life also in the midst of this landscape there's white marble temples that are dedicated to Caesar worship and it dominated the landscape your eye looking out couldn't help but see these polished white stones that I imagine you look at it and your reflection um, looks back at you And so Jesus, this is the place where he brings his disciples. Of all places, this is where Jesus brings his disciples and then asks them this question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? 
It's as if Jesus, he's putting himself up and comparing himself with all the world powers, all the, all the other gods that people worship, the Syrian gods, this goat god Pan, the, the Caesar worship that goes on. Jesus, he's putting himself up in comparison with all of these, and he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Their response is in verse 14. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now, many people in this time were, were crediting Jesus with being a prophet, um, but hadn't given him the label Christ or Messiah yet. See, Jesus, he spoke a lot about this alternative kingdom. In Matthew, he calls it the kingdom of heaven. And this kind of gives him this prophet voice. But people haven't associated with Jesus as being the Messiah. So then Simon Peter, he replies in verse 16, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in this, Peter, he makes two bold claims about who, who Jesus is. The first one, that he is Christ. And that Greek word, Christ, which is Christos, translates to anointed one or king. He calls Jesus king. You are king. You are ruler over everything. Remember in their landscape that they're in. There's the Syrian god. There's these temples to Syrian gods. There's the Greek god uh, Pan. There's Caesar worship. And, and Peter calls him king. The second statement he makes is very political in nature. This, it's this, son of the living God. Now, this isn't a phrase just pulled out of thin air, something that Peter made up on his own, but actually he's grabbing from language that Caesar would use about himself. In fact, Caesar was not just king, but he gave himself the label, he is the son of God. He himself is a deity, if you will. So Peter's confession is not just about who Jesus is, it's also um, who Caesar is not. It's not just who Jesus is, but it's who Caesar is not. Goes on, verse 17. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus, he tells Peter that you are going to play a huge part in the beginning of the church. You are going to be a leader. You are going to lead people. Now, it's interesting that he also encourages and, and tells Peter that, you know what? Nothing is going to stand against you. Nothing is going to stand against 
my church, um, against my people. Now remember where they are. They're in Caesarea Philippi with all these gods and Greek gods and, and Caesar worship. And, and, and Jesus uses this language, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. It's interesting. This place was actually considered by Jews. They would actually refer to it as the gates of hell. This is where all this worship, all this sacrifice, all these worship of these false gods, it was a terrible secular place. It was called the gates of hell. And what Jesus tells Peter is all of these powers, Caesar and these other gods, will not prevail against my people. Jesus asks his disciples to make a claim about him amongst all the world powers, amongst all the powers that be. This brings us to another scripture in which people are making bold claims about Jesus. Turn forward in the Gospel of Matthew to Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Matthew 21, verse 1 says this. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Unite them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying say to the daughter of zion behold your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt the fowl of a beast of burden the disciples went and did as jesus had directed them they brought the donkey and the colt put on them their cloaks and he sat on them most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. It seems as though that the story is building to this one moment. I imagine if, uh, if they were making a movie of the Gospel of Matthew, the writer would make it seem as though this is the climactic point in the movie where Jesus, he's coming in uh, on the donkey that was prophesied in Zechariah and people are shouting, Hosanna, God save us. This is the point in the movie where we as the reader or, or viewer of the movie would, would see that here comes Jesus. Everything's going to be okay. He's going to come and establish his kingdom and happily ever after. I imagine it would kind of be like, I don't know if you have seen um, the movie Into the Woods that came out a few months ago. But there's something great about the stage musical um, of Into the Woods. Because what happens in the first act is it comes to a conclusion and the baker and his wife have gotten the baby little red riding hood and her grandmother have defeated the wolf cinderella has her has her prince uh what what other characters am i missing um the jack uh and jack and his mother um are now taken care of and it seems as though it's happily ever after and that's the way the first 
act ends. That's the curtains close, and you're and you you as the audience are like, well, what else needs to happen? And so and so it actually goes on, and then you realize that they have to deal with the consequences of of what they have done to obtain the baby and and security and defeating the wolf and and getting the prince. They have to deal with those consequences. So Jesus, he's riding in, and it almost seems as if it's going to be happily ever after. And just when you think that everything's going to be okay, the next scene, I imagine the people are believing that he is going to go. Um, he is going to go to the house of Caesar and overthrow his kingdom. But in fact, he goes to the temple. And people, they're shouting, Hosanna in the highest, supreme being, bigger and greater than any other. They're actually singing Psalm 113 and one, uh, through 118. It's known as the Hallel. They're specifically quoting in this, uh, what Matthew tells us is um, Psalm 118, verse 25. It says this, get this. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord from the house of of the Lord we bless you. And so I imagine here they're thinking the king is coming and he's going to come and overthrow Rome and the Caesars. And then he takes a detour and goes to the temple. And the next day he's in the temple and, he, and he's flipping things over and, and, he's, and he's upset about how the temple is being used. And we have this scene in verse tw- uh, chapter 21, verse 42, and they're asking him, by what power do you do this? Who gives you authority to do this, to teach in the temple, to have authority in the temple? And then it's ironic that he quotes Psalm 118, verse 22. Get what verse um, 22 of Psalm 118 says. It says this, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The very song that they're singing, Lord save us, Lord grant us success, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. A few lines later, it actually says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone that the people, even though they're shouting Hosanna, will eventually reject him. And we see that Act two, if you will, when Jesus, he arrives and then he detours and goes to the temple and he starts to do things that make people uncomfortable. It says in the text when he came in and people are shouting Hosanna, Jerusalem was all stirred up. And so we're faced with this question, who is God in the midst of uh, ambiguity? When, when it seems like, like he's not doing the things that we would expect, when, when God is doing something different than we had ant- anticipated. They imagine that he's going to come and be king, and he is, but he's doing it in a different way. I find that most people abandon their faith. It's when they expect God to work one way, and in the meantime, he's doing something else. And sometimes it makes us uncomfortable. Sometimes we are forced to wrestle with this. That we expect God to do one thing, then God seemingly does another. A dear friend of mine has experienced this in a very painful and real way. He entered into the ministry with his wife with 
looking forward to doing ministry and serving the church and loving people. And, uh, and I got to serve with him. And then he eventually had the opportunity to go and do ministry in Kansas City. And so he packs up his family into the car. He packs them up into the car and they, they leave California to this new church, this new ministry opportunity where, where he's looking forward to doing God's work in, in Kansas City. He gets there and, and his family has been there for about nine months and his wife is feeling homesick and missing California and she tells him, I want to just go to California around Thanksgiving time and just visit my mom. And so they pull the kids out of school and, and she loads up the car and, and he he wasn't able to go because he has responsibilities at the church, and, and so they load up in the car and they drive to California. She says, I'll just be there for a week, and then I'll be back, and we'll do Thanksgiving together as a family. Well, it's the day before Thanksgiving, and he calls her up, and she's not responding. Calls again. She doesn't respond. Calls and calls, and it's been about 10 days when he finally gets a hold of her. And this reality is starting to set in that she's not coming back. And when he finally gets her on the phone, he says, you're not coming back, are you? There was a long pause and she said, no, I'm not. And then she proceeds to tell him that their youngest child isn't even his and that she has been having an affair for the last five years years my friend began to be depressed in one moment his marriage was falling apart the ministry his career everything that he had worked hard for in schooling was falling apart and god seemingly was absent and he's asking god what are you doing in this where are you god why am i suffering why am i going through this isn't that the question we ask when god when stuff happens and we don't understand what god is doing it's been amazing to watch my friend through this experience go on and um, his wife ended up leaving him. But what was so amazing about it was the way that his boss's superintendent took care of him. And his church was faithful to him and said, we are going to stand behind you. You are our pastor. And out of this, he began, like what God stirred up in him was this heart for, for young married couples and counseling and realizing his own faults and his in his, in his marriage, and how God is going to use that to bless others. But in the midst of that pain and suffering, we ask that question, uh, we ask that question, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? God, Jesus, why aren't you going and taking care of the powers and authorities and rulers in this world? Because Jesus' mission, what Jesus is up to, is far greater than we could ever imagine so they've made these claims hosanna in the highest you are the supreme leader you are it you are you are our savior you're the messiah you're the one we're looking for and just in a few chapters later look how the story has turned turn in your bibles to matthew 27 verse 32 
Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink and mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are, the, who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and he will be- and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So here's Jesus. He's hanging on the cross. And notice who's there. There's, there's Roman soldiers and, and there's elders and chief priests and they're hurling insults. When just a week ago he comes into the town and thousands of people are sh- shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, God, save us. You are hired. You are the supreme being as he enters in. A little before that, his own disciples right there amongst him are claiming, you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. Where are they now? What do they actually believe about Jesus? What do they actually believe about the Messiah? Where are the people shouting Hosanna? Where is Peter claiming, this is the Son of the living God? And notice the insults hurled at Jesus. They are all about what he has claimed. And not just what he has claimed, what others have claimed about him. You see, the reality about this week, about today, is we are all part of the crowd that welcomes in Jesus when it's easy. And everyone is doing it. We are also part of the non-existent crowd that has abandoned the claims We have made about Jesus when he is suffering on the cross. This week as we enter into Holy Week, 
This is the time of year when we face our fallen and broken humanity. And we ask the question, who can change us? Who can redeem us? Who can restore us? Because we are all guilty. We are all implicated. We all need redemption. We are all part of the crowd that shouts Hosanna. We are we are all those people. And then we're part of that non-existent crowd that when Christ is suffering, we walk away. Because the reality is, is the place of the cross is what we deserve, and he takes it upon himself. They imagined a God, a Jesus, who was going to come in and overthrow the powers and authorities that held him held them down. But what Jesus was doing was much bigger. He was going to the cross because we are all sinful and broken. We all need redemption. We are all sinners. We have all fallen short. We and who can be the perfect sacrifice? Who can redeem us? Who can restore us? Who do we say that Jesus is? This week, as we face our humanity, our brokenness, and our need for, re- for redemption, I want us to reflect on this. Who do we say that Jesus is? Is he the Christ? Is he the Messiah? Or is he only God when it's convenient? Is he only God when we won't have to suffer? Is he only God when it makes sense for our way of thinking, our way of being, our way of viewing the world? One of the things that I have found in ministry and being part of the church and following after God is oftentimes when I think I know what God is doing, what God is up to, I find that it's far better than I even imagined. And oftentimes I'm also confronted with the ways that I see, the ways that I think what God should do, and in fact he's doing something far better over here. He's bringing redemption and restoration over here. And what this calls me to is to examine my own heart, my own preconceived notions of what a redeemer and a savior looks like. Just when I think it's those people over there who need redemption and saving, God confronts my own heart. Just when I think that things are spiraling out of control, I'm confronted that text that the gates of hell shall not prevail. Who is Jesus this morning? As we look at Christ suffering on the cross, may we recognize that that is our place. We are the people who have abandoned him. We are the people who have left him, and yet he loves us. What Christ is doing changes everything. It's far bigger, far better than we can even imagine. He would even suffer and die for people who abandon him.
that's the reality we're faced with this morning, is that there is a God who loves us so much that even though we have left him, even though we've abandoned him, even though we have preconceived notions about what God should be like, he still loves us enough to go to the cross to die for our sins, our brokenness, to restore our humility.